where do you find your identity? I mean, we live in a time where a lot of people uh, will start saying things like, this is what identifies me. They'll say, uh, I identify as, and you can insert all sorts of things. You can insert some pronouns there or all sorts of things as well. I was reading the news lately, and um, I found that there was this article of this man who, um, who said he's always identified as a dog, and now for $14,000, he's living his dream. Here's a picture. That, that's a human being in that dog suit right there. And as a 46-year-old man, I'm like, oh my gosh, my back and knees would be killing me right now, all right? I, I'm not making fun, but sometimes when the universe gives you this, it's like, I, like this, is, this is bizarre. Like someone that would spend $14,000 to identify as a dog because they feel like that's what they've always found their identity in. So my question for us is, I think it would be important for us to know what our identity is. Now, if I were to say, what is your identity? You may look at your family or your work or your ethnicity and say, hey, this is how I find my identity, which are not bad things at all. Sometimes we will identify ourselves by our achievements. Many people in, in, uh, will identify themselves by their sports teams. Uh, sorry for your luck there, Dallas Cowboys fans. Um, in the, <laughs> I don't care about football. It's just funny. Um, in the times of the, of the gospel, <laughs> Jesus uh, was identified by his work. He was a carpenter and his family. He was known as Joseph's son and his, uh, his birthplace, which would be Nazareth. Uh, but like us, that's, that was just his identification. That was not his identity. And, and that's what we're going to learn about from our text today, that what Paul's been drilling down in the church there in Rome to these Jewish converts to Christianity and these Gentile Greek converts to Christianity, he really wants us to see that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, it changes everything everything in our life. And so we'll continue our journey through the book of Romans. And if you've missed any of it, you can go back to YouTube and watch that. Or I can just say, grab your Bible and read the first six chapters of Romans, but just give you a little bit of what's going on to kind of help put us on track. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, Paul's been showing us that we are not saved or condemned by our works. Let me say it one more time. You are not saved or condemned by your works. No, we are either condemned by the works of Adam, Adam and Eve from the beginning, or we are saved by the works of Jesus. All humans are in Adam from birth, and the only way to not be in Adam is to be born again, and that's to be born in, again into to Jesus, into Christ. We learned last week to, to be born again. It's actually a free gift uh, from God. It's by grace. So it's not by our works at all. It's by the works of Jesus. That's why we make much of Jesus here. That's why we use the word gospel a lot because it's really good news that Jesus came and become one of us. He lived perfectly in our place. He died sacrificially on the cross. He did the work. He resurrected three days later. He is alive. Forty days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, and one day will return and restore all things. None of that had anything to do with you. It wasn't your religious activity, your spirituality, your giving, your serving, your volunteering, your good deutery, or anything like that. It was all by Jesus. So if you are a Christian and if you are in Christ, uh, that should create in us a whole new way of living. We are not under the rule of death from Adam, not under the rule of sin from Adam, Adam, we are under the rule of life and grace from Jesus. We have a brand new identity. Um, why? Because we had died to sin. Here's what I do know. Here's what I know. If you physically die today, which I hope you don't, but if you physically die today, 
uh, then there's something that's going to be true about you. You will no longer struggle with sin. Corpses don't deal with temptation. They're not in the graveyard like, hmm, she looks fine over in that grave over there. No! There's... No saint that has gone ahead of us is in, in heaven right now struggling under the rule and reign of sin. Why? They have been freed because they have died. Now, here's the reality. What about us who are still alive? The Bible is telling us that we should no longer live under the rule and reign of sin. How do we practically live this out? Well, if you've got your Bible, go to Romans chapter 6. I think we'll find out a little bit today. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. So make sure you grab one up front or out at Center Point. They're a free gift to you. And if you've got a smartphone, which you probably do, download version. It's on there as well. Uh, but today I want to see a clear picture of our identity in Christ. And I don't know, somehow, some way through all this, I really think it's going to give us life change today. I really think it's going to bring us hope today. It's going to be really good news uh, today. My, my, my hope is that we would float out of here because of the good news of Jesus, thankful for him and equipped to go and live this new life in what he's called us to. So we're going to start Romans chapter 6, verse 8. Are you there? All right, let's get started. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. He says, if we have died with Christ, meaning if, when you've trusted Christ, you identify with Christ, you have died with Christ, we've died with Christ, what's going to happen? What's the result? We're going to live with Christ as well. This truth is just powerful. Jesus died but didn't stay dead, right? What happened to him three days later? He rose from the grave. Uh, Imagine if we were to live out that in our lives right now, where we would no longer fear death. No fear in life, no fear in death. Imagine, Imagine how powerful we would be how unstoppable we would be. Now, uh, as Christians, I'm going to argue that we should not fear death. The getting dead part, we should be like, ah, don't want that. But like the, the death itself is like, there, there's life, we will live. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians 1.21, you probably know this or have heard it. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, that was very easy for Paul to say that. I mean, he was, at this time period, he was sitting on one of the beaches there. He was sipping a Mai Tai. The sun was hitting him. It was a beautiful day. And of course he would say something like this, right? No. Where was Paul when he said this? In prison. Like, not like prison. We have like bad cellar, awful dungeon prison. He says, if I live, great. If I die, great. It's win-win. I can imagine always a, a funny scenario because like he's in prison there. There would be guards around and the guards are really getting tired of Paul because it said a lot when Paul was in prison, he would sing hymns and he would uh, you know, pray out loud. And like he was just on and on and on about Jesus, talking about Jesus all the time. I, I bet the guards got so annoyed with that. And the guards were like, hey, Paul, we don't like you. We don't like your Jesus. Be quiet or we're going to kill you. I can imagine Paul saying, that'd be great. Dying is gain. Bring it on. And like it would like confuse the, the guards are like, well, uh, uh, wait a minute. On second thought, uh, if you keep it up, we're going to let you live. And Paul's like, fantastic. That means fruitful labor. That means I can keep on telling you about Jesus. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, not die, not live. Okay, Paul, we're going to let you live, but we're going to make you suffer if you keep it up. And Paul's like, hey, guys, I consider suffering in this present world uh, not worthy comparing to the glory that's be revealed. So bring on the suffering. Paul was unstoppable because he believed and lived out his identity in Christ. 
In Christ, I have died. And if I have died in Christ, I will live in Christ. You can't stop me. If I'm alive, it's fruitful ministry. If I'm dead, it's face to face with Jesus. It's a win-win. This is the good news of this gospel. There's a resurrection. Christian, do you believe in the resurrection? You will live, again, allow that to fuel life now. You will live again. We could be a bit more risky. I'm not going saying go play in traffic or anything like that, but we can be a bit more risky. Verse 9, he says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer. Now, notice it, it says death no longer, like death did in a minute. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice that how he's contrasting it. The death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, what Paul's doing right here, he's emphasizing the, uh, that Christ died once and for all. Uh, this is a technical term used repeatedly, that's being used repeatedly in the book of Hebrews to emphasize the finality of Christ's work on the cross. Paul made this emphasis because Christians must have full confidence that the Lord Jesus will never again come under the power of sin and death. Jesus will never, ever, ever, ever be under the reign of sin and death again. Now notice I said again because he was under the, the power and the reign of sin and death. Why? He chose to. When he took on flesh, he chose to be under the power of sin and death. To take it one step further, uh, he was under the power of sin and death because he took on our sin. Our sin was imputed to him. Our sin was put into the account of Jesus. And so willingly, he puts himself under the dominion of sin and death. This is huge. This is a, this is a big deal. I mean, he, Jesus was sinless, and yet he became our sin. Why? Why did he do that? Or just wonder, like, why would Jesus do all this? Willingly be under sin and death. Uh, you ever read the Old Testament? Yes. Yes. You ever seen the Bible? <laughs> just kidding. The Old Testament is, some, sometimes we, we, we get afraid of the Old Testament. We're like, it's a lot of names I can't pronounce, and there's a lot going on in there, and it's wild. It is wild. Uh, but if you ever notice in the, in the Old Testament, especially like around the Leviticus area, what's going on in the book of Le- Leviticus a lot? Anybody? Say say get laws. What else? Sacrifices, right? When you read Leviticus, it it reads like a like a horror movie almost. Like there's just blood everywhere. I mean, just killing animals left and right, left and right, left. Why? Why are we killing all these animals in the Old Testament? Sacrifice for what? Sin. Sin. Meaning humanity is so sinful that so many animals must die because uh, the, the blood is what buys us freedom. The blood is what forgives sins, what the Bible tells us. And so it's a very, very bloody book. But now Jesus comes, and Jesus is called our lamb. He's called our sacrificial lamb. Look what uh, it says in Hebrews 10. It says in Hebrews 10, 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sin. It just kind of paused it, never could take it completely away. But when Christ had offered for a time, all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
like meaning it is finished. Like when he was at the cross, his last words were, it is finished, meaning that's it, one and done, good to go. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet, which is a great visual, like the enemy at his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you hear that? Like his single offering 2,000 plus years ago on the cross is all you need in your sanctification to be perfected. He's done all the work on your behalf. Like, and, and as I said last week, his role is the one to perfect us. We're not to perfect ourselves. We're to join in in sanctification. We're to pursue him and to walk with him and pursue some holiness. But he is the perfecter. And now he is no longer under sin and death. Why? Because he died once and for all for you and I. That's what we say all the time. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. And sometimes it becomes white noise. No, this is huge. The work is over. Jesus died for you so you may be forgiven sanctified and eventually perfected by him. It's really great news. But sometimes, sometimes we don't view Christianity as really great news. We we, we view Christianity as kind of dim and gloom sometimes. Because when you think about Christianity, it's it's filled with a lot of death. We just think like, you know, Christianity is just all about dying. Jesus died, now I got to die. And then, then Jesus comes along and says things like this in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, so make sure you lean in and listen to this because he's telling us this. He says, anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That doesn't sound fun. Take up his cross. What, what does a cross do? It's a, it's a tor- torturing device. It's, it's, it's for execution. Take up your cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is calling each and every one of us to die and follow him. And in our minds, we're like, that just sounds horrible. It's like a life filled with a bunch of little deaths. Like we just die and die. And like we're just, con- and it just feels like, well, that's, that doesn't seem positive. The Christian life just seems gloomy, sad, and negative. But what we need to do is we need to see those deaths, those little bitty deaths, there's purpose with that. There's, there's a reason behind it. We're dying in order to truly live. Look back at verse 10. It says there that Jesus died in order to do what? See it in, the, in verse 10? What, he died, but then what's the last part of it say? To live to God, right? Did I write that down wrong? Am I right? It says he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to what? And so we die denying ourselves and taking up our cross to self because in and of ourselves, there's not life and life flourishing, but we die to that in order to, that's why we die to sin, in order to live to God. That's positive, right? Uh, Remember when the the religious elite were like stopping Jesus and they were always trying to trip him up and try to get him to like, you know, uh, say something wrong that way, ha, and get him. And so there was one time where they, they kind of questioned him. They said, hey, Jesus, there's like 613 laws in the Old Testament. Which one's the best? And I think they were trying to trap him. And what did Jesus say? Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment of all is to love God with what? Heart, soul, mind, strength, everybody you're being. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Okay, you're smart. You know that verse. You probably have heard it here before. Or if not, you just heard it right now. Where are the don'ts in that? Where's the negative? 
Jesus says, greatest law is not thou shall not, right? It's, it's 100% positive. And that's why he's saying that we are to die to self and to die to sin and to die, those little bitty deaths in order to kill the, the like death parts of our life in order that we can live to God because that's where life flourishes. You believe that's where life flourishing happens, right? When we love God with all of our being and when we love our neighbors as ourselves, that's how humans flourish. That's what we were designed to do. And so it's not all negative. It's not like God's trying to be some cosmic killjoy to take everything away that you like. No, 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 no. He's trying to reorient us to a new life in him to where that's where we find flourishing. That's why we identify with Christ's death and his life as well. We have newness of life. So we need to go about our lives killing sin. How? I'm glad you asked. Verse 11. He says, I love this. He says, so you also must, what's the word? Consider. Consider. There it is. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you've been a part of our uh, Ash Wednesdays, we, we say that a lot. Dead to self, dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He uses the word consider right there. Um, consider, uh, there's a country word for consider. Anybody here from the country? We used to use this word a lot in the country. It's called reckon. <laughs> you ever heard that word before? Reckon. Is it going to rain today? You ask a farmer, is it going to rain today? I reckon. What does that mean when they look up? I reckon. What, they are considering the facts around them. They're considering the truth around them. They're considering the reality around them. They're saying, I've considered, and I say, I reckon. <laughs> like The answer is yes. And so what Paul's telling the church there and us as well is that we need to constantly reckon or constantly consider ourselves practically right now, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider that. Like this is a true reality that we consider. Before Christ, we considered ourselves dead to God and alive to sin. In Christ, we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. This is why Paul, for six chapters now, has been going gospel, 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 gospel. This is why here at Grace Point Church, you'll hear from the beginning to the end, what? Gospel, 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 gospel. Why? Because this is the true good news of Jesus coming, living, dying, resurrecting, and ascending that has a practical life change now and for all eternity. And we are to consider it. Now, the question is, how do we consider it? It's the gospel just facts? Believe these facts. Or is the gospel power? Which one is it? And the answer is yes. It, 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 is, it is both. It is historical, true facts that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus resurrected. Read outside of the Bible. You'll see that is a historical, true fact as well. It is a true fact, and yet it is also the power in which God uses to transform and change our lives. Now, here's what the enemy in our flesh wants to do. The enemy in the flesh wants us to just believe it as a set of facts, and nothing changes in your life. It doesn't have the power to change anything in your life. Just believe these things. I got my T's crossed, my I's dotted. I believe these things, and all's good. The enemy in our flesh wants us to just believe that. That's it, and life really doesn't change. But the, but the gospel has power, empowered by the Holy Spirit, 
to transform our lives, to make us more into the image of Christ. If, if the gospel is just a set of facts that we believe, we put it in our brain, lock it away, move it on, and we just run out the clock until we die, then that's a gospel I want to have nothing to do with. That's a gospel I want to have nothing to share with you. That's a gospel that we should all go home and watch. There's no sports on right now. But the gospel has power to change. So has it changed you? Let, let me illustrate it this way. Um, let's, take a, let's make a fictitious character. And we'll say this fictitious, fictitious character is older, like advanced in years, elderly. And his name is Clem Cadiddlehopper. Uh, and, and Clem Cadiddlehopper was looking back over his life. He knew it was coming to an end shortly. And he looked at his life in two halves. And the first half, this is going to be cheesy, the first half is B.C., before Christ. The second half of his life was A.D., after death, after he died and was reborn in Christ. Make sense? B.C., A.D., got it? When he looks at the two halves of his life, he's not saying this is my two different natures. No, what he's looking at, he's saying, no, 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 no. I remember when I met Jesus, the old me died. Clem 1.0 is dead. There is only a Clem 2.0. Why? Because his old life is dead. Died in Adam. Died in sin. There is a death. And so it's not two different natures that we have. It's two stories we have. Can, can you remember when you trusted Jesus? Do you remember, like, I don't know what age it was or stage it was, or like, hey, this is when I feel like God saved me. Before that, you, like, everything before that, you, you, you died. It is, it is dead. And now he's called you into this newness of life. We are called to walk in, in, in newness. This, this is the two, the two lives we have. It's kind of like your life is uh, uh, um, like two books, volume one and volume two. Volume one is over. You're in volume two right now. Don't go back to volume one and try to relive it again. Volume one is dead. You have to be reminded of it. That's why he's saying consider, reckon, really see yourself as the old you is dead. Amen. Let me illustrate it this way. Can a married person live as though they were single? Well, the answer is, of course they can. Maybe you've seen that as well. It's not impossible. But you know what they need to do? They need to remember. They need to consider you need to reckon, like, I'm not single anymore. The single me died. You know one way they can do that? If you're married right now, reach down there and feel what's on your finger. The idea is, like, I'm going to be, rem oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not single. The single me died. Some of you are like, I don't wear a wedding band. Please do. The metal. I have a $3 one from Amazon. It's silicone. There you go. But remember that. Can a born-again Christian live as though they were still in their sins? Yeah, absolutely we can. For a while, it's not impossible. But what do we need to do? We need to reckon. We need to consider. One great way I said last week is what? Remember your baptism. Do you remember your baptism? Well, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't been baptized. August 27th, it's coming. Be baptized. L let me continue with this. How will I know? How do I know I'm actually considering? How do I know I'm actually living this way to where I'm, I'm actually dying to sin? What does it look like in that progress? What does it look like in life to say, hey, I really feel like I'm dead to sin and I'm living in that direction? Look at verse 12. Let me help you. 
It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Notice he says mortal body. Hang on to that. To make you obey its passions. Here's a great indicator, great indicator of your life to know that you're living in Christ, like practically living that out and not in Adam, that you're not allowing sin to reign in your body. Here's a great way. Are you ready? You don't allow sin to reign in your life anymore. Let's pray. No. Like, well, what does that mean? Because like when we think about that, when we think about letting sin reign in our life anymore, we think of the most heinous of sins, and we're like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not smoking crack. I'm not like visiting ladies of the night. I'm not going to Nickelback concerts. And by the way, stop sending me stuff on Nickelbacks in town. I don't care. (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) go. Stop it. I'm just kidding. And so we think of big, we think of, well, I'm not doing that. So like, I'm good. But you know that like good moral Christian people who read their Bibles and pray and do all those kind of things can still allow sin to reign in their lives. It's called secret sin. But then there's this other extreme of like, right, I will not let sin reign in my mortal body. And so that means I cannot sin whatsoever. And I am sinless. And there's a whole sinless movement where we sin no more once we follow Jesus. How's that working for you? And then we quote things like 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And we're like, amen, no more sin for me. But then when we keep reading 1 John, if you go back a little bit, 1 John 1, 8 says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So then, how do we know we're not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies anymore? Maybe we're not doing the worst of the worst, but maybe there's secret sin, or maybe we're we're, we're trying to become sinless, but that's not working. What, what, What do we do? When it talks about, the Bible talks about sin reigning in us, um, and the way it's written in the original, it's like, uh, it's a swimming pool illustration, that we're no longer swimming in sin. It's like a breathing illustration, that we're no longer breathing in the air of sin. And the idea is that when Christians sin, we hate it. It disgusts us. We don't want to do it. Do we sin? And the answer is, I'm giving you, I'm giving you a clue. But we don't want to. There may be seasons in our life where sin is more, seasons where it's less but it's still evident, it's still prevalent in our lives sometimes, and we absolutely hate it. We don't want it to make its home in our house. We don't want it to to set up shop in our life. And I think when he talks about letting sin reign in your mortal body, it's like, if not careful, sometimes we resign to the fact, well, I'm just a sinner, and God loves me as a sinner, so I'm just going to keep on sinning like there's no fight left in us. There's a silly little story I read. It's called, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. In the book it says, if you give a mouse a cookie, he will want milk. And when you give him milk, he will want a straw. And when he is finished, he will want a napkin. Then he will want to look in the mirror to make sure he doesn't have a milk mustache. He'll see his hair is too long and he'll ask for some scissors. And when he's done with that, he'll want a broom to sweep up. And he might sweep every room in the house and even wash the floors. When he's done, he'll want a nap, and you'll have to make a bed for him, have a little box. He'll fluff the pillow a few times. He'll probably ask you to read him a story, want to see the pictures. 
He will get excited and want to draw a picture and ask for crayons and paper. When, he's fin- when the picture is finished, he'll want to sign his name and ask for a pen. Then he'll want to hang it up on the, uh, the picture and ask for scotch tape. And he'll hang it on the refrigerator and stand back and look at it. He'll then remember that he was thirsty. So he'll ask for a glass of milk. And chances are, when he asks for milk, he's going to want to do what, he'll go, he's going to want to what, what with it? A cookie. Sin, is sin not the same way? It's like just kind of, you know, it kind of gets into our life and we entertain it a little bit and we, we kind of resign to the fact of like, ah, oh, it's all right, it's not a big deal, Jesus loves me. And, we just, and it grows and, and it, where it builds up shopping. Around. And Christians, here's what we need to do. We need to kill the mouse. We need to... There's no mouse lovers here, right? We, and we, have, we need to use everything in our arsenal Worship, prayer, Bible, community, abstaining, brothers, sisters, singing, gathering, everything at our arsenal. That's why we do what we do here. Like everything we do here is to help us to live in that new life and help us to live in our new identity and like practically live that out. That's, that's why the church exists. That's why we do it. We, we want you to come in here and hear that gospel to remind you of it and to rehearse it and to respond to it. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it like this, the reason for the church, and I think it's very helpful. He says, it's easy to think that the church has a lot of different uh, uh, objects, education, building, mission, holding services. Uh, just as it's easy to think the state has a lot of different objects, military, political, economic, and whatnot. But in a way, things are much simpler than that. The state exists simply to promote and to protect the ordinary happiness of human beings in this life. A husband and wife chatting over a fire, a couple friends having a game of darts in a pub, a man reading a book in his own room or digging in his own garden. That is what the state is there for. And unless they are helping to increase and prolong and protect such moments, all the laws, parliament, armies, courts, police, economics, etc. are, a sim- are simply a waste of time. In the same way, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. Everything we do here is for transformation of new life. John Calvin said the church is the Christian's gym. If we go in here to work out together so we can go live out together what we've worked out inside of here, that is the point. So we wage war against our sin. We kill it, mortify it, as the old reformers would say. How? Verse 13. Do not present your members members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, when he talks about members here, what is he talking about? Not, not church members. He's talking about your body. You and I have a body, right? Yes. And our bodies are important. We are not Gnostics, meaning we don't think the body is bad and we need to rid ourselves of the body as quick as we can because it's what's sinful and all that. No, God gave us bodies and our bodies are important. And we are to use our bodies for good. Our bodies will be redeemed at the resurrection. That's, that's really good news. We just had a funeral here on Saturday of Kiana. And here's the truth. Kiana will rise. Her body will come back. 
The Lord will unite her soul and body together, and she will live. This is the good news of the gospel, that our bodies matter. And what we do with our bodies matter right now. Paul used the terminology instruments here, and in the original language, instrument means weapon. Your body is a weapon. So many jokes there. And that means God has given us weapons to live in the new life and to avoid the old life or to execute the old life. He's given us weapons to do this. We just don't roll over and be like, well, we're just going to sin, and woe is me, I'm a victim. And No, we are called to use our bodies to fight against sin. We don't surrender to sin and fight against Jesus. We surrender to Jesus and fight against sin. And so we make war with our sin. Are we making war with our own sin? Now, notice I said we make war with our sin, not everybody else's sin. But Ty, I love posting on Facebook these things. No, not their sin, your sin. Worry about your sin more. If, you, if we put as much effort in our sin as we do everyone else's sin, I think we'd look more like Jesus, am I right? Ed Welch said this. He said, there's a mean streak to authentic self-control. Self-control is not for t- the timid. When we want to grow in it, not only do we nurture an exuberance for Jesus Christ, we also demand of ourselves a hatred for sin. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a de- declaration of all-out war. I hear so many Christians murmuring about their imperfections and their failures and their addictions and their shortcomings, and I see so little war. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Why am I this way? Make war. If you wonder how to make war, go to the manual. Do not, don't just bellyache about your failures Make war. There's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you are in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. We are to act like war, to war against the sin in us, to make us look more like Christ, not to make us better people, not to make us moral people, not to make us more favorable for God, not because of those reasons, but because we are in Christ. And sin, or grace reigns in our life, no longer sin. This is the good, and we have the weapons to do this. Last verse. Verse 14, it's a promise. I want you to hear this promise. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Wait, why did he attach sin and the law together? The law is a great thing, right? The law is a tutor. We should... We should Look to the law and find out more of what God wants of us and how God wants us to live. But why does he use law right there? Because the law will not save you. It cannot save you. It will only show you how big of a failure, failure that you and I, we are. The law cannot, but we are now under the reign of grace. This is a promise. If you are in Christ, you are set free. Now go live. It's free. One last thing before I get out of here. I have one challenge before we end this. Look back at verse 13. You're going to love this. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Your body, yourself. Are you an instrument of righteousness? Are you an instrument for Christ? Are you a weapon? Or are you an instrument for sin, an instrument for unrighteousness? You're in church, and you're probably going to say, well, I'm an instrument for righteousness. I'm an instrument for Jesus. Okay, okay. 
prove it. Many of us will say, you know what? I've given Jesus my heart. Jesus has, you know, I trusted Jesus in my heart. He has my soul. And my retort to you would be this. What about the rest of you? Can he have that as well? Because if not careful, we think Jesus just saves my heart. The centrality of who we are. Or that Jesus just saves my soul. I'm going to argue, no, Jesus wants all of you, and that includes your body, like the members of your body. What if you were to give Jesus your hands to, to serve him, to serve others? What if you were to give Jesus your brain? to think about Jesus and to, to read his word and study and to be informed and be transformed? What, what if we were to give Jesus our feet? Because everywhere we go, our feet go, am I right? To where we are around other Christians as well and we use our time because that's where our feet is well, to, to serve one another and to care for one another. What if we were to use uh, our mouths to worship Jesus, to bless others, to bless Christ, um, to sing, you know we're the singing people, right? Christians, we have a song to sing. And, and, and so why not? I, I can't sing. I can't either. It's okay. God bless the people in front of me. It's awful. But the, the Bible tells us to make a joyful noise for the Lord. So just put your noise out there. It's okay. He loves you. But we, our mouths to bless and not to curse others. What if we were to give Jesus our eyes? You know, not to set anything unholy before our eyes, as the book of Job says, but also to use our eyes to see things, to see people, to see needs, to see God's activity. What if we use our eyes that way? Our ears to hear, to hear the word of God and to hear what other people need around us. What if we were to give God all of ourselves, not just our heart? Someone's like, yeah, you know what? I, you know, I, I've got this body, and I take care of this body, and I work out this body real hard, and I educate my mind to do all these things. I, I'm, I'm doing all these great things with my body and all these great things with my brain. I'm doing all these good things. Here, here's my pushback, though. That is great. But is that for you, or is that for Jesus? Because we can, honestly, we can do things for self-glorification, can't we? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat right, work out really hard, and I'm you know look really good, and that way other people will compliment me, and I'll feel good about myself. That's glorifying self, isn't it? But, but what if we were to like properly use our bodies in such a way that we have time and energy and ability to where, like, no, I can serve the Lord with my body, with everything I do. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything, and you do everything with your body, am I Right? In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Perhaps the way we use our bodies might be sinful. But perhaps the way we're using our bodies might just be sloppy. Or maybe, a, a, let me clean that word up. The way we use our bodies, just not intentional. Right here, our Bibles have, it tells us that our bodies are a weapon that can be used for Righteousness. They're a weapon that can help ground us in our identity in Christ. They're an instrument, a tool in the hand of our Redeemer. Here's what I want to do for us. I want to pray. And I'm going to ask you to get in a, a physical embodied position that you're comfortable with. It may just be sitting where you're sitting. It may, may be palms up, 
just kind of in a, in a place where you're just kind of open to God, and maybe for some of you, you want to kneel or whatever feels comfortable. And, and I want to just lead us in, in, in a prayer uh, of examining our body and saying, God, you, you have all of it. And, and perhaps the Holy Spirit may convict you on areas of your, your life, your body, that you're not using as a tool of worship or an instrument of righteousness, but you're using for self-glorification or for, uh, or for sin. And so that'd be a, a great opportunity to confess, repent, and say, Lord, in repentance, I'm now, I want to use this for you. And then we'll go to the Lord's table together. So let me, let me lead us in prayer. Lord, you are the one that created our bodies, and our bodies matter. Would you, would you first help us come to that reality that our bodies do matter, and they belong to you? And so, God, we want to use our, our brains, our minds, as an instrument of righteousness. We want to fill it with your word and be washed and made new with it. Forgive us for filling it with garbage. God, we want to use our hands. Our hands to praise you. Our hands to hold others, to care for them. Our hands to serve you through the church and the world as well. God, forgive us how we've used our hands for our own glory to strike, to steal. God, we want to use our feet everywhere we go. The shoes of the gospel to proclaim your goodness by being somewhere in our presence. God, forgive us for ever using our feet, even to run away from you. God, may we use our mouths as instruments of righteousness to praise, to encourage, to sing, to love, to care for. Your word is right. It's a fire. So forgive us. We've used it to curse others and you, to rebel, to malign, to gossip, to lie. God, may we use our eyes as instruments of righteousness. to see your activity in the world, in our lives, in the world around us, to see needs, to be aware, 
to be awake. God, forgive us for using our eyes as tools of unrighteousness, for lust, for coveting. God, would you use our ears as instruments of righteousness to hear the needs of others, to hear the stories of others, to hear your word deep into our hearts. Forgive us for using them as instruments of unrighteousness to, to be deaf to the world around us. To the needs around us. God, would you help us care for our bodies better? So that we can get proper sleep, exercising the gospel of life, death, and resurrection, to have the energy to go about our days, to prioritize our time to where we may seek you in your word through prayer. We connect with our brothers and sisters. And God, as we do this, we, we trust you as the great perfecter. And so would you make us more like you? Would you help us to truly live a life that is in Christ, that is new, under the reign of grace, and to see our old life in Adam death and sin no longer having control over us. And God, I just pray for my brothers and sisters now that are struggling mightily with sin, compulsion, perhaps addiction. God, would you give them reprieve? God, would you give them community like refuge or community group or just a good brother or sister to help them and walk with them in this? God, would you rescue them? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Now may we be a people that live truly in Christ and under the reign of your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.